Thanks for listening to The Vine. We're a new church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this sermon helps you in doing that. So this morning, we are, are thrilled uh, to have a special guest uh, preacher with us. And Gideon Singh is a... Uh, uh, Ten years ago, he and a group of people started a church called Vox Vignette in East Austin. And a couple fun things about this is, one, I met Gideon around ten years ago when Jen and I used to live in East Austin. And I would just see this really trendy-looking guy riding his fixed bike all over East Austin. We end up oftentimes going to the same places. We were in a book club. As masculine as that sounds, it's true. We were in a book club by a guy who had a cafe, and he just gathered people together, and Gideon and I were in that, in that group. And uh, we later on developed a friendship, and we also realized that both of us were pastors. And uh, another fun thing about Gideon is that uh, we as a church, the Vine, we're part of a larger family. And our larger family is called the Covenant Church, and uh, it was founded in the late 1800s. Uh, but it's taken a really long time for Covenant Churches to be in Texas and be in Austin. And so Voxonier and The Vine are the only two Covenant Churches in Austin. So they are our sister church, and we've learned a lot from Voxonier. So would you do me a, uh, a favor and welcome Gideon? It is uh, good to be here with you all. So Vox Vene means, uh, it's Latin for voice of grace. And so we've been around uh, about 10 years. And when we celebrated our 10 years, uh, we said, well, that name has a hint of arrogance in it. So we have grace. And look out, Austin, we're going to come bring you grace. And it turns out God's already in our city, and the city's full of grace. And what we say is over the last uh, 10 years, we were graced uh, with our voice. And so it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, it's good to be with Mark uh, and Ted and see the community uh, that they help lead. Um, so I've known Mark for probably 10, 11 years now. Um, and someone sent me this past week because they heard I was speaking here. Um, a video of Mark rapping in high school. <laughs> have you guys seen this? Some of you have? So I didn't bring it. I thought I'd, I'd spare him, but... Um, in case Mark does anything to me. I've always got that in my back pocket. Um, well, this morning, let's start with a question. And I'll give you a couple minutes to turn to a neighbor to discuss. So do you consider yourself high energy or low energy? All right. So turn to a neighbor, just tell them. And how do you feel about that? All right. So, show of hands, how many of us consider ourselves low energy? Okay, a lot of us. So, you've made it out of the house. It's 10.30, you're ready to call it a day. Like, it's good. How many of us consider ourselves high energy? You shouldn't drink coffee, but you're on to three cups and life's awesome. Right. How many of us thought we were high energy uh, and then we had kids? <laughs> Some of us? Um, so, I was reading a book uh, a while ago. Some of you may have read it. It's called The Circle by Dave Eggers. And so it takes place in the dystopian near future. Um, the protagonist, her name is May, and she works for this company called The Circle. So The Circle would be as if uh, Facebook and Google combined and then surpassed itself. And so she joins at an entry level, 
And to work her way up in the company, you have to share as much of your life as possible to broadcast everything that's happening. And so the slogan of this company is secrets are lies, sharing is caring, privacy is theft. And you kind of see where it's going, a little bit scary, right? And so there's one chapter in particular on health monitoring that I thought was kind of interesting. So May wears this uh, wristband, and it monitors everything that's happening in her body, her intake, her uh, how much she's drinking, eating, her energy levels. And I found this chapter equally scary, but also interesting. And the slogan for that chapter, to heal we must know, to know we must share. So you kind of see where it's going, right? But I thought, wouldn't it be helpful if we kind of knew what we spend our energy on? Wouldn't it be helpful to know what we should be spending our energy on? And so this morning, I wanted to play around with the idea of what if we thought of God's spirit as a source of energy? Right? In the scriptures, uh, the metaphors or the symbols that are used, Jesus says when, you, when the spirit comes upon you, you'll have power or the symbol of fire or wind. And so this morning in our text in Joel, it talks about how God's spirit will be given to all flesh. And so what I want to do is uh, we had the text in Joel read earlier. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to unpack Peter's version of it. He quotes the exact same thing. And then maybe to ask that question of what does it mean now in our lives much later. Because you all have been in this series, Stranger Things. And when you read the stories of the Old Testament... They're kind of weird, right? They're a little bit strange. Or sometimes, do do you read the Old Testament and it feels like God kind of changes? It kind of feels like in the Old Testament, God's kind of mean and scary. And then suddenly in the New Testament, he's nice, right? And I want to propose, what if it isn't that God changes, but over the decades and the centuries, we're changing. And our capacity to understand who God is is expanding and developing. And so what I want to do is I'm going to have you turn to a neighbor and read the Joel text again. We're going to unpack Peter's version of it. And then we're going to ask, what does that mean now, today, in our lives? You guys following? Okay. So we'll have Joel chapter 2 on the screens. Um, Just read it aloud to someone sitting next to you, and then we'll jump in. All right? Go. All right. So let's uh, pick it up in Peter's version of this same text. So we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 16. So this is this. No, this was spoken through the prophet Joel. So right before this, the church historically is called the event, the Pentecost. And so the Holy Spirit shows up, and then there's a symbol over their heads. And what's the symbol? It's like tongues of fire. And then they're speaking in different, what? Languages, right? And then so the observers are like, I think they're drunk. Like, I think they've been drinking. And I like Peter's answer. (laughs) Peter's answer is like, no, it's 9 a.m. So Sunday brunch isn't a thing yet. And then he quotes Joel, and he says this. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour up my spirit upon, what kind of flesh? All flesh. Moral flesh? All flesh. Good flesh? All flesh. The right skin color flesh? All flesh. Theologically precise flesh? All flesh. So it turns out the one requirement for having God's spirit is having flesh. You just need to have flesh. Then it keeps going. And he says, your sons and daughters shall, what does it say? 
prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. I used to read this and go, well, I don't really know what it's talking about. It kind of feels like it's talking about one day God's spirit will come, and there will be fortune-telling hallucinations and trances. Right? But what if there's an alternative way to read this? Right? So in the Old Testament, uh, prophets weren't fortune tellers. You've probably gone through some of the different prophets. They were strange, granted, but they were more like activists, performance artists. They were people speaking truth to power, right? They were more Noam Chomsky than Professor X. No? More Malala than Genie in a Bottle. You guys following? So they're speaking, speaking truth. They have a greater understanding of truth. And what if this text is saying when God's spirit comes... He's going to expand our understanding of what truth is. We'll have a greater understanding of visions, things that are beyond what our mind can understand, things of transcendence, and dream dreams. To understand our subconscious, which drives a lot of the things we do, that God will expand our understanding of truth. Does that make sense? So maybe we can think of it like this. I've got a chart here. So let's say we have the categories of the subrational, the rational, and the transrational. Just hang with me for a sec, okay? So in the subrational, um, go to the next slide, literalism is its main deal. In the rational is reason, and in the transrational is meaning. The subrational values fear and protection. So if you live in a subrational society, you're living in an ancient world. You don't know much about the other world. Something that's unknown or different could actually eat you or kill you. So it was dangerous. Then in the rational, the value is science and logic, and then in the transrational is story and metaphor. The question that the subrational is asking is what does it say? The question that the rational is asking is can it be proven? And then the question that the transrational is asking is what does it mean? Are you guys following? Okay. So in the scriptures, go to the next slide, the age of reason hadn't happened yet. The scientific method didn't exist. So most of the communities, when you read in the scriptures, that's why it feels weird. They were subrational. Then the scriptures and the prophets, and Jesus in particular, was always trying to lift them into the transrational, right? That's why Jesus was always telling stories and parables and metaphors, and everybody was confused. Everyone, right? Jesus is like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. They're like, huh? The, to, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. They're like, what? I already came out once. You're talking about my mother. I'm not going back in. Like, it's just strange because they're taking everything literally. You guys following? So what happens then is the enlightenment. Go to the next slide. And the scientific method comes super helpful. Very, very important. Right? And now we can drive cars. I've got a supercomputer in my pocket. But then what happened was in the age of reason, the church... And theologians were like, what? That seems awesome. We want to be rational too. And go to the next slide. I propose they lowered the ceiling. And in lowering the ceiling of what was supposed to be transrational, I propose that it's possible that Christianity created atheism. And what if then the scriptures and the prophets and Christ is always trying to ask us questions of the transrational? Does that make sense? So go to the next slide. So a greater understanding of truth, of transcendence, and of meaning. Okay? You guys follow? So what does that look like then day-to-day in our lives? So maybe a way to understand it is like this. 
So think of the last movie you saw. Okay, you got it? Now think of a movie you've seen three times, the same movie. It's like so good, you watch it three times. You got that movie in your head? Now think of a movie that you've seen like four or five times. Who has a movie like that? You've seen it so good, you just keep watching it, right? So for me, when I'm watching a movie, the first time I'm just experiencing it, right? Well, that was fun. That was interesting, right? That was funny. Then if I watch it a second or third time, I get more cognitive information, like just details, knowledge. Oh, he was dating her. Oh, she's his brother, right? You're just getting more information. But then if you watch it a fifth or a sixth time, the meaning of the story, the meaning of the characters start to surface. So a movie uh, that I watched many, many times was the Darjeeling Limited, anybody? And so check out this clip. You gotta hit it again, I think. A favorite conversation among film geeks is which Wes Anderson movie is the best. I love this conversation because there's so much to love about all of them, and you can't really argue with somebody who picks Rushmore or the Royal Tannenbaums or the Grand Budapest Hotel, so really the conversation is less about competition and more about how one particular movie in this director's filmography affected someone personally, how one particular angle of Anderson's vision hit that person squarely in the face because of where or when or who they were at that moment in their lives. For me, that film is The Darjeeling Limited, a story about three brothers on a spiritual journey through India. In The Darjeeling Limited, Jack, Francis, and Peter spend a lot of time communicating to themselves through each other. Did I raise us? Kind of. Francis is especially guilty of this. He organizes this bogus spiritual journey to process his father's death, now a year past. He thinks maybe that if he can't connect his brothers through discovering some deep profundity in India, that the tragedy will be senseless. After all, we're told that pain makes us stronger, that it has lessons to teach. But what if it doesn't? He's so desperate for connection that he spends the entire movie literalizing it in the form of an agreement. Let's make an agreement. Let's make another agreement. Let's make another agreement. Let's make another agreement. Can we agree to that? 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 Jack and Peter process the grief in their own ways. Jack writes a short story about the funeral. And he's also grieving, by the way, the end of a romantic relationship, something that's detailed in a really great short film that precedes Darjeeling called Hotel Chevalier with Natalie Portman. The brothers seem to think that his solution to everything is to run away. I'm keeping his passport. But as that little gift from his ex shows, grief is like a scent. It lingers and has a deep link with memory. Run away and it'll follow you. Try to destroy it, and you'll only unleash the aroma in a more potent form. But it's Peter, I think, who takes the tragedy hardest. Not only is he the angriest of the three, but his entire life has become distorted. His caring wife is weeks away from having their first child, and he's in India? He appropriates his father's belongings, namely his prescription sunglasses, which make the world unfocused. In the Royal Tannenbaums, Richie hides behind giant sunglasses so that the world can't see him. In Darjeeling, Jack wears prescription sunglasses so that he can't see the world. All right. Isn't that beautiful? And what would that look like if we did that with our lives? I think most of us just experience our lives and then we move on. 
Or sometimes we'll go back and we'll talk about factual information. But what if when we experience something, just to ask questions of transcendence and meaning, and what does this mean? What does this tell me about God? What is God telling me about myself? I think this is what Paul, mean, uh, this is what Paul means when he says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. Like, I think we live life only seeing through our eyes at a surface level. And he's like, I pray that the eyes of your heart, that can understand truth and meaning and transcendence in a more expansive way, will be enlightened. You know, Malcolm Geet had this, has this poem, and this reminds me of it. He says this, I cannot think unless I have been thought, nor can I speak unless I have been spoken. I cannot teach except as I am taught, or break the bread except as I am broken. O mind behind the mind through which I seek. O light within the light by which I see. O word beneath the words with which I speak. O founding unfound wisdom finding me. O sounding song whose depth is sounding me. O memory of time reminding me my ground of being always grounding me. My maker's bounding line defining me. Come hidden wisdom, come with all you bring. Come to me now, disguised as everything. All right, let's keep going in the text. So just a quick review. What's, what's the main requirement for having uh, God's spirit? You just need to have what? Flesh, right? So I think uh, Joel, right? God was speaking through Joel, and then Peter quotes this. It's like just in case you don't, like, understand how expansive this is, he says in verse 16, 18, even upon my... Slaves, boom. Like, he's like, in case you didn't get, I mean, all flesh, slaves, men, women, the ones you've dehumanized, the ones you've created as the other, even they will have my, my spirit and will prophesy. So I wonder if God's spirit is always trying to unite those we've divided, always trying to connect us with those we've disconnected. So think of it in this way. So in Jesus' baptism, I think we have a picture here of the icon. What's the symbol of God's spirit? What is it? A dove, right? What direction is the dove he heading? Is the dove ascending or descending? And what if God's spirit is always inviting us to descend to include those we've excluded? Now let's go back to the beginning of this Acts passage. So Jesus saying the Holy Spirit and Peter saying he's going to include, right? So what's the mechanism? What's the mechanism by which he's uniting here? So the spirit comes, there's flames. Then what changes? They could speak in different, what, languages. And so maybe a question here is this. If God is inviting us to descend and include those we've excluded, do we use our words to divide? Or do we use our words to unite? Do the words we say push people further away? Or do they bring us together? And so in this last year, um, the leadership of our church, the pastors, We've spent a lot of time asking, in this political season, what's the place of the church? Right? It seems like we're living in a country that's becoming more and more divided. And it's not just the U.S. Around the world it's happening. You've got Brexit in the U.K., almost happened in France. 
Friends of ours just moved back from India, and he said the exact same thing happened. They voted in a neoconservative nationalist, and there's an upsurge of violence. It's happening around the world. And so we've asked this question continually, and we don't have that many answers, but one of the questions we asked was this. What if we gave our community tools to use language to unite rather than divide? And one of the things we, we're taking our community through is we're doing a training on nonviolent communication. I think we have a picture of the book. Marshall Rosenberg is the author. And I'll just give you a couple examples of how this works. So I'll give you a parenting example and then one from the book. So the premise of this book is basically we have these universal human needs. We all have them and we should have them. We don't really know what they are. So we have these unconscious ways of trying to get these needs met when we're communicating. We don't know we're trying to get these things met. The people receiving the words don't know we're trying to get it met. Oftentimes, we don't get those needs met, and we just stab each other with words, right? That's the world we live in. So in nonviolent communication, the premise is uh, understand what we're feeling, come from those feelings, and then ask for what you need, okay? So an example would be, um, some of us parents, we often have conflict with young children around green edible items, right? It's a thing. So my boys are older now. I have a 17-year-old and a 13-year-old. But when they were young, they wouldn't eat their vegetables. And then what I would do is I would do guilt and shame because that's what my parents use, and it seemed to work. So, And then what we do is we place the burden on the child. So we go, if you don't eat your vegetables, we'd say, you won't be tall, right? You're already creating a divide. If you don't eat your vegetables, you won't go to the bathroom, right? Kind of effective. And what nonviolent communication teaches us is speak from what you need. So as a parent, I would say, well, uh, son, when you don't eat your vegetables, I actually feel anxiety. Like, it kind of makes me scared. Because as your parent, this is my need. I actually love you and want to protect you. Like, there's billions of people on this earth, and I, I love you. And out of that love and need to protect you, I'm trying to set up healthy patterns. So would you help me meet my need? And what nonviolent communication says, you might be able to manipulate your child out of guilt and shame, like, briefly, but your child probably loves you and might want to help meet your need. Does that make sense? Here's another example um, from the book. Um, it's taken from a young woman in Toronto. She works at a detox center, and this guy comes in and needs a room, and they've run out of room, and she tells the story. She says, it came in at 11 p.m., need a room, and she explained they were full, and the next thing I knew, he was sitting across my chest, holding a knife to my throat, shouting, don't lie to me. You do, too, have a room. And she didn't know what to do, so she proceeded to apply her training by listening for his feelings and needs. She said, she says, desperation sometimes makes us good communicators. And she, she's talking to the author here. She goes, remember that joke you told in the workshop? It really helped me. In fact, I think it saved my life. Remember when you said to never put your butt in the face of an angry person? I was ready to start arguing with him. I was about to say, but I don't have a room when I remembered your joke. It had really stayed with me because only the week before, I was arguing with my mother and she said, I could kill you when you answer but to everything I say. Imagine if my own mother was angry enough to kill me for using that, words, oh, that word, what would this man have done? If I had said, but I don't have a room, he was screaming at me, he might have slit my throat. But rather than put my butt in the face of an angry person, 
I tried to empathize. So instead, I took a deep breath, and I said, it sounds like you're really angry, and you want to be given a room. He yelled back, I may be an addict, but by God, I deserve respect. I'm tired of nobody giving respect. My parents don't respect me. I'm going to get respect. I just focused on his feelings and needs. I said, are you fed up not getting the respect you want? How long did this go on, the author asked. Oh, another 35 minutes. He said, that must have been terrifying. I said, no. After the first couple of interactions, um, something changed. Because something else we learned became apparent. When I concentrated on listening for his feelings and needs, I stopped seeing him as a monster. I could see, just as you said, how people who seem like monsters are simply human beings whose language and behavior keeps us from seeing their humanity. The more I was able to focus my attention on his feelings and needs, the more I saw him as a person full of despair whose needs weren't being met. I became confident if I just held my attention there, I wouldn't be hurt. And she said, but after that, I needed help with a harder situation, my own mother. And friends, what would it look like in this day and age, in this political climate, as we're trying to form and start a community, if God was giving us his spirit to use our words and language to bring people together rather than disconnect each other. You know, as we're starting a church in its early stages, we always talk about community. But sometimes we don't know how to talk about the hard things. We don't know how to talk about politics. We don't know how to talk about theological issues we disagree on or things that are hurting in our lives. And then we keep each other at a distance and we're not able to let people in. And I think it'd be a beautiful thing because I think in Joel, God's spirit was used in language to unite and then in Acts and he's continuing to expand our capacity to do so. All right, let's finish this up. Verse 19. It says, I will show portents or warnings in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you read this, and it sounds, it sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? And I was taught to read this literally which probably isn't the greatest way because it's apocalyptic poetry. I'm not sure we should read any poetry literally. And then the other problem is blood moons have come and gone. And we're still here, right? So I want to propose another way to read it this morning. And you can disagree. This is just a proposal. You can talk about it, discuss it. But what if this were a way to read this text? So think of a time in your life uh, that was a difficult season. So theologians talk about suffering as just simply the loss of control. So there's a spectrum of that. You're sitting in traffic, you're suddenly losing control, you're suffering. Then there's a spectrum all the way if you lose your capacity of health, you lose control, you're suffering. So think of a time in your life where you've lost control. Maybe it's a failed relationship. Maybe it's someone you love and they're going through a health crisis. Season unemployment. Maybe a season of doubt that feels disconcerting. Okay. You got that season in your mind? 
You guys got it? Now, in that season, what did it feel like? Did it feel so intense, like you were being held to the fire? Did it feel like there was smoke in your eyes, like you couldn't even see what was next? There were just tears filling. Did it feel like the world as you knew it no longer existed, like the universe was tilted, like the sun was dark and the moon would turn to blood? Did it kind of feel like that? And maybe in this text, the promise is when we come to that point, when we lose control, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I'll tell you my version of the story. So we started a church in 2006. Uh, the first two years were fun, and then the next four years were just hard. They were just hard. Um, I realize now as a leader um, that I like to handle my anxiety by starting new things. <laughs> so you start a church, and you're like, oh, I'm like, we'll start a nonprofit. Oh, let's start a community center. Oh, let's start an intentional community. And you're starting these things to appease my anxiety and then just burning people out, just like a trail of bodies behind me. And then to the point where my, my board, my leadership, like, they hugged me, like, out the door to take a sabbatical. They're like, get in, you're tired, we love you, just go take a break. But I'm a little bit like a toddler. You know how toddlers, when they're tired, they're like, I'm not tired, right? That's what I'm like. So they hugged me out the door and kind of like, just rest, go. So I was telling the story. I was leading a workshop in Seattle, and I was telling this story. And then someone in the back of the room raises his hand and goes, so, getting, how can we prevent burnout then? Like, what, what, what have you learned from this? Like, what would you do to prevent it? And I thought about it for a second. And I said, that's a good question. I was like, man, as hard as that season was, I wouldn't want to do it again. I don't think I could do it again. But it was probably the most important thing to happen to me as a pastor. I needed to come to the end of myself. Pastors always talk about, well, God is in control. But honestly, we're in control, right? And I, we don't give up control. Control has been taken from us. And I said, as hard as it was, it was an important season in my life. And another hand goes up in the back of the room. Like, they're not having it. They're like, well, one guy asked, what does Jesus show? Like, what does Jesus teach us about sustainability and not burning out in his life? I go, well... I'm not sure all of Christ's life is prescriptive, but I think it's still a good question. I thought about it a little bit longer. I said, I, I, I think he got himself arrested, tried, and killed. And I think he was trying to show us something, that that's the pattern of life and new life and transformation and maturity. And as hard as those seasons are, we will all go through them. And when we're in this season, God's promise is I will never ever leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you. And in fact, on the other side, it's going to feel like death. But I propose on the other side, you're going to be more at home with the way the world was intended to be and who you were intended to be. On the other side, it'll be like my father's house has many rooms, limitless rooms, and you're going to be at home there. And maybe that's why Jesus says he's the sign of Jonah. That at some point your life will swallow you whole. Your marriage will swallow you whole. Your crushed dreams will swallow you whole. Your version of faith will swallow you whole. And he says, I will never ever leave you or forsake you. And everyone, everyone, black, 
brown, white, Asian, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, educated, uneducated, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John O'Donohue says it like this. The beauty that emerges from woundedness is a beauty infused with feeling. A beauty different from the beauty of landscape and the cold, perfect form. This is a beauty that has suffered its way through the ache of desolation until the words or music emerge to equal the hunger and desperation at its heart. It must also be said that not all desperation, not all woundedness, succeeds in finding its way through the beauty of form. Most woundedness remains hidden, lost, inside, forgotten silence. Indeed, in every life, there is some wound that continues to weep secretly, even after years of attempted healing. Where woundedness can be refined into beauty, a wonderful transfiguration takes place. And so, friends, what would it look like for us this morning as God's Spirit was offered to Joel and at the day of Pentecost and is still offered now to expand our understanding of truth and transcendence and meaning. And everyone, everyone, all of us who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this is my prayer for us this morning. So friends, on the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, May the clay dance to balance you. When your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colors come to awaken in you, a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays into the curic of thought and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of the light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. And so now, may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. And the mercy of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the empathy of the Holy Spirit.